My family is accustomed to me going to movies and complaining because for me, it seems like most of the storylines are either recycled or pretty juvenile. And, and I, I go to a movie and I'll say, well, what was that about? You know? And so because of that, my middle son, Jared especially, loves to bring to me movies that he thinks I would like. And I remember several years ago, he said to me, Dad, and he knows I like Bruce Willis. He said, Dad, I think you ought to watch this movie. It's called Unbreakable. It's a good storyline. I think you would like it. It's got a lot of dramatic irony in it. It's about a guy that everybody around him can be injured, but he, he's unbreakable. So I remember watching the movie, and it was just on my mind for this weekend because what the Bible is talking about is you being protected in the biggest war, the most real war of life, and that is spiritual warfare. And this is not Hollywood. This is not fiction. God is telling you and me that if we will wear the armor that he provides for us, that we will be unbreakable in life. People can be breaking around us, but we will, we will be secure. So with that in mind today, I wanna to take you to the book of Ephesians chapter six, and let me just tell you this, this is the most challenging message of, of all the talks that I'm gonna to bring to, to you in the series of contests. And for that reason, I put it off until the end. I'm like some of you guys who are in high school and college who put off assignments till the very end. That happened to me with the series because I understood very clearly the first talk about how that our, our fight is not against people and the weapons, that made a lot of sense to me. But on the armor of God, to be perfectly candid with you, I've heard scores of sermons in my lifetime on the armor of God and none of them have really made a great deal of sense to me. And I've read a number of books on spiritual warfare. I've actually delivered sermons on spiritual warfare that don't make a lot of sense to me. And, and the reason for that is I've always been challenged with this, is exactly what does it mean on a practical basis? Because you know, in a, in a few moments, I'm gonna to talk to you about five pieces of protection that correspond to <clears throat> pieces of armor that Roman soldiers wore. Well, I've always had a couple of issues with that, and you guys know faith comes as a challenge for me, and, and I'm a very practical, pragmatic person, and I've heard all these ministers through the years wax eloquent about dressing every morning in the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the, the belt of truth and put on the sandals that are preparation, and I would hear that, and I think, i got two issues with that. Number one, I live in 2011 America, and we're not Roman soldiers, and number two, this is about spiritual protection, and my spirit doesn't have a waistband. My spirit doesn't have a head, my spirit doesn't have a chest, and my spirit doesn't have feet. Here's the bottom line that I need to get to, and I've prayed and worked and studied and read to get prepared for this talk today. What we're talking about here is what are the spiritual preparations that we need to face today? So when we talk about shoes and shields and, and, and breastplates and helmets, when we talk about those kinds of things, they're metaphorical in nature. Really what we need to focus on is exactly what is the spiritual preparation that I need before I leave to face today in the morning. I'm gonna do my best to bring to you a very practical talk on the armor of God so that when it comes to the real challenges of life, we'll be unbreakable. I'm gonna do my best to put no preacher talk in here, uh, you know, no spiritual ease, no religious jargon that churches are so good at. We're going to go to gut-level preparation to face today because here's what I understand. In 2011 America, in fact, I just had a talk with my, my youngest son last night, and, and I, I want to just say something to all of you who are young adults or maybe even not quite adults yet. I want to say this. The world you're going to face is a very scary world. The adults, it seems, have left the room in our culture today. And I... I think we truly are in what the Bible calls the last days. And it's going to be challenging to navigate and deal with the world where 
you know, the wheels have fallen off and morality is a thing of the past. And if you have a loving marriage, you're a museum piece. I mean, this is going to be a challenging world to live in. And so for that reason, I want to make sure that when I talk to you about what the Bible calls the armor of God, I want to blow all the smoke away and I want you to feel this and get it and be able to live it, all right? With that introduction in mind, let me just take the time to read to you the entire section for what I've called the definitive chapter in the Bible, Ephesians 6, on spiritual warfare, and I want to read to you about the armor of God in its, in its complete context, okay? Beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on, this is the first of two times we're going to hear this expression, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. You're familiar with these words by now. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We don't fight people. But against the rulers, demons, against the authorities. These are demons with, uh, with, with great power, against the powers of this dark world. That's demons assigned to specific places. And against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. These are agents of depravity that pull us down into the moral sewage that we're in today. Verse 13, therefore, based on that, this is the second time, put on, this is God saying this twice, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, in other words, when you have an especially difficult attack, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then, and here we go, here's piece number one, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, number two, the breastplate of righteousness in place. Number three, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up number four, the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And number five, take the helmet of salvation. All right, I'm going to talk to you about all five pieces in just a moment. But there's some language here that I need to deal with and I want you to see before we get there because it's just stuff that stands out to me. First of all, we are told twice to put on or to take Actually, we're told more than that when you consider the word take. We're told several times to put on or to take the whole armor of God. Now, there is an assumption built into that. God would not tell us to put something on if we didn't have it. He wouldn't tell us to take something if we didn't have it. For instance, if I said, everybody bring your Maserati to church next weekend, you'd look at me kind of funny because most of you don't have a Maserati. If I ask you to bring something to church, I'm assuming that you have it or else you couldn't bring it. So for God to tell me this many times to bring the armor of God or to put on the armor of God, God is assuming that I have it. That takes me to the second thing, and that is just the expression armor of God. Because the armor of God is like I've been speaking the last four weekends on the weapons of God. The armor is armor that God gives you. You don't earn it. This is something that is a gift. You know, it, it's not that if you come 20 straight times to church and don't miss, God will give you the breastplate of righteousness. If you tithe for a year, God will give you the helmet of salvation. It's not, it's not like that at all. These are gifts that God gave you the moment that you prayed to invite Jesus Christ into your life. So you have the armor of God. It is God provided. It's got God's seal of approval on it. Just like the weapons that you use are God weapons, the armor that you wear is God armor. Now, three. What does the Bible mean when it says take the whole armor of God? Because twice the Bible says take the whole armor of God. I don't want to bore you with hearing, telling you about ministers I've heard throughout the year that, years that would talk about, oh, be sure that you don't leave the helmet of salvation. Or let, let me just tell you what it means, honestly. It just means don't leave any part of your life unguarded. Don't leave any section of your life unguarded. See, many of us are good at guarding the strong areas of our life. Let me just say this. 
a lot of you, you don't have any problem with moral purity because a long time ago that was settled in your life. And moral purity is just something that is part of who you are. And even though you have safeguards in your life to build against lust and flirtation, that's a settled issue. It's just not a struggle for you. On the other hand, you may struggle with finances or you may have finances all settled and you may struggle with truth issues or it could be that you've got all of those things dealt with but you struggle with insecurity and emotional issues and anxieties. Here's what the Bible is saying, just make sure you don't leave any part of your life unguarded. And I can tell you firsthand, this is really important because as a minister, I have watched as high profile ministers have fallen to scandals. And for 33 years as a pastor, I have built all kinds of firewalls and layers of firewalls in my life to make sure that I didn't fall in a moral area or a financial area. But as I've shared with you before, one of the biggest challenges that I face is when it comes to anxieties. And I have watched as even though God has allowed me to be successful in these other areas, that if I don't protect my emotions, if I don't protect my state of mind, and if I don't have the shield of faith up to stop the darts of the enemy when he throws them against me with fear, I can fall in that area. So what the Bible says, take the whole armor of God, it means guard every area of your life. Now, here's why God tells us that. Because some of us have the idea that we're like the banks. We're too big to fail. And I want to tell you something. If you have the idea that you're just such a great spiritual person that you cannot fall, there is a word for that. And the word is dumb really dumb, very dumb, because all of us can fall. Isn't, isn't that true? I mean, just unscrew the halos for a moment. New Spring is not a, a place for, you know, sacrosanct people that don't have any problems. We're all people with issues. Any one of us can fall. And so because of that, the Bible is telling us to guard every area of our life. Now, here's what the armor is about. It's interesting to me that God doesn't say wear the armor so that you can go out and find the Holy Grail or you can do all kinds of great, magnificent things for God. Three or four times in the text, the Bible says that we're to wear the armor of God so that we can stand. In other words, when you're under attack, the Bible says there will come a time when it will be everything you can do just to stand. And many of us know exactly what that means. Well, what's the opposite of stand? The opposite of stand is to collapse. And that's what God doesn't want you to do. He doesn't want you to collapse. He doesn't want me to go to pieces for so many reasons. Number one, God doesn't want to see me in that condition. God knows that my family is depending upon me. God knows that a church is dependent on me to some, to some degree. And, and God knows that there are people that are not Christ followers yet who are watching my life and evaluating to see whether or not it's real. And if I collapse then the battle will be at least temporarily lost. And so God is saying, wear the armor so that you can stand. With that in mind, let me go through, and this, I don't know if you could call this a sermon or not, I just want to kind of catalog for you the five pieces of armor and what they mean on a practical basis so that you can, and here's the thing, guys, I got to tell you something. Whenever I bring a talk to you, my primary concern is that Monday morning or even before Monday morning, you can leverage this in a practical, meaningful, meaningful kind of way. I don't ever want you to walk away from here on a weekend and say, I just don't know that anybody could use that. I want to give you stuff that, and this is God's word, it's not from Mark, stuff that can change your life. All right, here's the first piece of armor, it's in, in verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Now you know your spirit doesn't have a waist, so consequently this is a metaphor, all right? The belt of truth buckled around your waist. What, was this, what would this mean? Well, let me just take a moment to do something I don't want to do very often this morning and take you back to the first century. 
Soldiers back in Bible days would have long flowing tunics. And as you can imagine, that's all right as long as you're lounging around the base, you know. But when you're in a fight, you need to make sure that that long flowing robe doesn't get in the way of your feet or doesn't give the enemy an advantage. So basically what they would do is they would take a belt and they would cinch up their robe. And I can't think of a better way to say this, but just in my, you know, crude way of saying this, it just turns a dress into a pants, basically is what happens. So God is saying, do that. You want to take the belt of truth. You want to make sure that you're not free flowing. Now, what does that mean in real terms? Well, if you, and one of the things that all of us need to learn to do is to let the Bible interpret the Bible. Because if you look through the Bible, one of the things I love about my job is there's great integrity in the Bible. You can cut in, I can cut into it in the Pentateuch. I can cut into it in the, in the historical books or in the poetical books or the major and minor prophets, or I can go into the gospels or the epistles or wherever I cut into the Bible, there's always this holistic integrity. Every once in a while, I'll meet somebody who will tell me, oh, there's so many errors in the Bible. And I'm thinking, I have lived my life in this book hand it to me or I'll hand mine to you and you can show me the errors that you want to show me. It is a remarkably practical book and it is a, it's, it's a book with immense integrity. So one of the things that I've tried to do in this talk is I've tried to just like all throughout the scripture to let the Bible interpret the Bible. Now, several places in the Bible, the scripture tells us to gird up the loins of our mind. In other words, God is saying when it comes to your mind, don't let it be free flowing. You want to turn the dress into pants. In other words, if you let your mind go wherever it wants to go, it will go into some places that will make you vulnerable to an attack of the enemy. Like, for instance, I understand this very clear in the area of worry. Some of you understand it very clear in the area of lust. Some of you understand this very clear in the area of ethics. I mean, a lot of people have the idea in 2011 America that you just have to go wherever your mind takes us, like a little, little kid chasing a butterfly with a net. Wherever it flits, you just have to follow it wherever it goes. The Bible's saying, no, no, no. First thing you need to do is to stand with the belt of truth. Now, here's what it means in a very specific way. It means you need to make a call about what you believe. This, I, you know, this is one of those things that I know, talking in postmodern America, this is going to be a challenge today. I'm about to have to go uphill to make this point, and it's going to be everything you can, everything you can do to embrace this, because the culture around us tells us the very opposite of this is true. But we're dealing with spiritual warfare here, and we're dealing with what you need to know to face the enemy. And the Bible is saying, you got to make a call, and I'm going to tell you something that you won't hear very often in a Christian church. You know, you could be here today and you could, you could say, well, I'm agnostic, I'm not sure there's a God, or I'm an atheist, I'm sure there's not a God. And when I make this comment, you're going to say, wow, I always was hoping I'd hear a minister say that. I'm going to tell you a statement right now, and it's this. You're going to have to make the call for what you believe without proof. Notice that I didn't say without evidence, but you're going to have to make the call without proof. For instance, I can't prove there is a God, nor can anyone prove there isn't a God. I can't prove there is a heaven. I, no one can prove that there isn't a heaven. I cannot prove that God loves me. I think I have magnificent evidence for that, but I honestly couldn't prove that God loves me, but nobody could prove that God does not love me. I cannot prove the Bible is true, although I have some incredible evidence, some awesome evidence for that, but I can't prove that the Bible is true, nor can anyone prove that the Bible is not true. Fact of the matter is, there's so many things in life that you and I are going to have to decide what we believe. Now, in our postmodern America, there, there are a lot of people that feel that neutrality is a safe place, and they will say something like this, I don't believe in anything for sure. 
In fact, I was listening to Josh McDowell's reading what Josh McDowell said at the Billy Graham Center on Friday night, and he made the point that 9%, only 9% of teens in America today believe that there's any absolute truth other than themselves. In other words, 91% of teens believe that there's no such thing as absolute truth. That's because we live in such a fuzzy world, and, and there's this concept today that somehow it's noble to say, I don't know what's true, I'm going to go on a search for truth, and whatever I find that's true, I'm going to put it in my bag, and I'm going to believe it. I love you enough to tell you that if that's your point of view, you're going to die as fuzzy as you are today. I, <clears throat> I hear this sometimes in a world today. It's like, Mark, it's up to God to prove himself to me. I'm not sure I believe in a God. But God must prove himself to me if God can give me satisfactory proof that rises to the level of what I consider proof, then I will accept him. In other words, it is incumbent upon God. The burden of proof is on God. Guys, could I tell you lovingly God is already going to heaven? It is not up to God to prove himself to me. The question is not whether God can give me adequate proof. The question is, can I rise to the level of belief? So when the Bible talks about putting on the belt of truth, what it's talking about here is talking about being settled about what you believe. Now, again, I want to make the point, if it, if, it, if it comes down to evidence, I'm an old debater. I would love to give you evidence of why I believe there is a God. I think the evidence is myriad. I think it's, there's a there's un unlimited evidence to prove that God is God, to prove that God loves me. I can give you all kinds of evidence to prove the Bible is the word of God. I would love that opportunity to give you the evidence that I have. But at the end of the day, I have had to make a call. I've had to make a decision and I am settled and I'm not facing the day fuzzy, maybe believing that God loves me, maybe not believing that God loves me, be believing that God's word is true and I can base my life on it or not being sure that God's word is true. I have to make a call just like you have to make a call. And neutrality is not an option. Nobody could say it better than Joshua said it in Joshua 24 when he said it this way. If you decide that it's a bad thing to worship God, and a lot of people do, in our world today, I keep wondering what did God, what awful thing did, did God do? Because, you know, you could, a, a, a person giving a, a, a salutatorian speech or a valedictorian speech and a graduation could talk about all subjects, but let her talk about God or let him talk about God. And the next thing you know, everybody is upset because after all, we have violated the Constitution. Notwithstanding that the same people who were involved in the writing of the Constitution fought a revolution based on the concepts of the Declaration of Independence, which says that we draw all of our rights from God, that the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness actually come from God. No, it's not unconstitutional to mention God. It's just that we live in a culture today that's decided they don't want to worship God. God is no longer a useful hypothesis. And when you read Romans chapter 1, the Bible tells us that when we no longer worship God, then we will fall into the abyss. Joshua says if, it's, if you decide it's a bad thing to worship God, then choose a God you'd rather serve and do it today. In other words, he's saying, don't flail around out there in some sort of pseudo-neutrality. But he's saying, look, you know what? You could look at God and say, I don't want to serve God. I don't want God to be my God. And Joshua's saying, okay, that's a viable position. 
If someone does it with all their heart, I don't agree with that, but that's a respectable position. And Joshua's saying, look, if you don't believe there's a God and you don't want to serve God, then just pick a God and, and, and serve that God. If you want sex, then serve sex. If you want money, then serve money. If you believe that you're God, then worship God and then just see what you're going to do when you get ready to die about delivering yourself. Joshua said, if you decide it's a bad thing to worship God, then choose a God you'd rather serve and do it today. But as for me and my family, we will worship God. That's what putting on the belt of truth says. It says, I'm settled. I've decided. I'm not trying to say that everybody else has to do what I do. This is not about legislation. This is just personal. This is a personal decision. I've decided what I believe. I'm settled. I believe in God. I believe in his son, Jesus Christ. I believe in the word of God. I believe God's promises are true. See, here's the thing. Joshua could say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord in 2413, because in 2314, here's what he said, and I love this verse. Deep in your hearts, you know that every promise of the Lord your God has come true. Not a single one has failed. I love that. It's a powerful thing to be settled, because if you and I are not settled about what we believe, the enemy will kick us all over the place. He will exploit those gaps. He will exploit those doubts. He will exploit that uncertainty. I can tell you that firsthand. So the first piece of armor that we're to put on is the belt of truth, which means to be settled about what we believe. The second piece of armor is in chapter 6, verse 14, when the Bible says, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. You don't, you're not interested in, in me talking about this, but I got to tell you, I read a sermon on this that I thought, oh, man, that, can't, that guy really can't mean that. He said that the breastplate of righteousness are the good things that we do, that somehow they will scare the devil off. So early in the morning, decide that you're going to do good things all day, and somehow that will scare the devil. I got two issues with that. Number one, I can't figure out how in the world that's going to scare the devil. And number two, I can't be perfect for 30 minutes. Either I do something I shouldn't do or I don't do something I should do. Anybody else like that? I mean, i got to think about it. If, if i got to put on the righteousness, my own personal righteousness, that is like wearing a T-shirt with holes. That ain't going to stop anything. Thankfully, that is not what the Bible means. Now, let me just walk you through some Bible logic. This will help us understand what the breastplate of righteousness is. Who is our enemy? Our enemy is somebody the Bible calls the devil. There is a Greek word that is translated into devil. It is the word diabolos. Diabolos means accuser. So how is he going to attack us? He's going to attack us by making accusations. Do you ever hear, you know, that thought on the inside? You're no good. You might as well give up. Remember what you did. How could God love you? You'll never be free from your past. Let's see, is this the 6,000th time you've confessed that sin or the 7,000th time you've confessed that sin? That is how he will attack you and me. He will attack us with accusations. I wonder, is there anybody here today? And this is a very personal moment in this sermon. I wonder, is there anybody here today who thinks deep inside, heaven can never be for me? Maybe it'll be for my wife or for my kids back in kids' world, but heaven can't be for me, not with my baggage, not with my weakness, not with my shame. I'll tell you what I think. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think there are people who've been in churches for 30 and 40 years who deep in their hearts, they look at their lives and they look at how they've failed God, and at unguarded moments, 
when they are honest with themselves, they really wonder, can heaven be for a place for a person like me? Do you know what? And again, I'm not, trying to be, I'm not trying to be unkind today. I just think most people really don't know what's in the Bible. I think religion just throws sort of messages out there, and we get a little bit here and we get a little bit there, but a lot of times I'm not really sure we really know exactly what's in the Bible. Because let me just tell you this, in all of our lives, if any of us ever begins to think, maybe I could never go to heaven, I remember what I did, God remembers what I did, God knows who I really am, I don't think I could ever be good enough to go to heaven, I assure you that Satan will stamp that parking ticket. Let me read to you what the Bible says about righteousness. Remember, this is the breastplate of righteousness. And remember, what it's strong enough to do is to repel the attack of the enemy. Listen to Romans 3, verse 21. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. What is the Bible talking about? I mean, first of all, we know what righteousness is. Righteousness is rightness. It is right standing. It is purity. And by the way, you know how, do you know how much goodness it takes to go to heaven? You have to be absolutely perfect. Nobody can go to heaven who isn't absolutely perfect. Don't freak yet. Just hang with me for a moment. Because okay. I just scared some of you to death. I mean, after all, I just told you a few moments ago, I can't be perfect for 30 minutes. Okay? So think about this. There is a rightness, the Bible says, that is available to you, and it is apart from the law. Well, what is the law? Well, the law is kind of like what it is for us today. I mean, we understand human law. For, in, for instance, many of you saw the speed laws as you came to New Spring today. How many of you over the last week have obeyed every speed law? Those of you who would raise your hands, I think you're either fibbing to me or I don't want to be behind you when I'm on K96. <laughs> we know what law is. When the Bible's talking about law in Romans 3, it's God's laws. And we know we've all broken God's law. That's why we think, how could heaven be for a person like me? Because we've broken so many of God's laws. That's our baggage. I mean, our baggage is that we know we're not right. We don't have this rightness. We don't have this righteousness. But did you read what I read where the Bible said, wait a minute, there is a righteousness that is available that comes to us outside the law. How does it come to us? Verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who do what? Believe. Aren't you glad to hear that? In Romans chapter 4, let me read to you some of my favorite words in the Bible. But to the one who does not work, that means to the one who does not count on his good deeds to get into heaven. Every once in a while I ask somebody, are you going to heaven? Yeah, I think so. Why? Well, I'm a pretty good person. Well, in other words, if, if you're thinking that way, there's nothing God could do for you. You're on your own. But to the one who does not count on his works. This is the person who says, I'm not a good person. I'm a flawed person. No, I'm not good enough to go to heaven. I know I'm not good enough to go to heaven. But believes in him, let me give you three of my favorite English words in the Bible, justifies the ungodly. What does justify mean? Justify means to, to make right. If you're justifying a margin, you know what you're doing. You're lining up the margin. What God, God is saying is that he justifies. Notice that God doesn't say he justifies the godly. It says he justifies the ungodly. One more time. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, in other words, his confidence in Christ, is credited to him. For righteousness. 
Okay, there is a righteousness that is available that is outside the law. How is it outside the law? Well, because God justifies the ungodly. And the person who puts confidence in Jesus Christ, God justifies that person. How, oh, this is big. How can God do that? Because for God to consider a sinner like me perfect when I've got so many flaws and failures that I can't even remember them all. Okay, hang with me for a moment. Here's the question. Isn't that tantamount to God just sweeping all my sins under the carpet and God saying, let's just pretend they didn't happen? Because if God did that, he's not fair. He's not just. Well, we would have no respect for a court system in the United States that would do such a thing. Can you imagine a court system in America that would say, it doesn't matter what you've done, whether you've murdered, whether you've raped, or, or, or whether you've done all kinds of heinous crime, we'll just pretend that it didn't happen. We'd have no respect for a court system like that. For God to say that he justifies the ungodly, how does he do it? I am about to read you what I think is ground zero of the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Look at this. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Every time you see a cross, I want you to think about a trade, okay? Now consider for a moment that you and I have our sin upon us. And if we stand before God, God is going to look upon us with all of our sin. But when Jesus died on the cross, what happened is in the mind of God, our sin was slipped off our shoulders, and our sin was placed on Jesus so that when he was nailed to the cross, he was wearing our sin, which is why he was so brutalized. And the way God looked at it, he paid for our sin so that he could be fair, he could be just. Why would God punish two people for the same sin? He was made to be sin for us, the one who knew no sin the one who was perfectly righteous. Our sin was placed on him. We will now think about Jesus. He lived 33 years, never did anything wrong. He had perfect righteousness. He, he, he was God's son. He came from God. He was going back to God. He had all the righteousness as, as the God man to go to heaven on his own. But you know what he did? He took his righteousness off and he took our sin on him and then he took his righteousness and he places it on our shoulders so that we stand forgiven from all the sins that we've, been, we've committed. And when God looks upon us, God, I mean, when you, if, if God were to open the books in heaven as you will someday and find your name or my name underneath our names, all it says is see Jesus Christ. There is a righteousness that is available outside the law. Why? Because God has made Jesus to be sin for us, the one who knew no sin, so that you and I could be made the righteousness of God in him. See, it's not just, oh, well, this is good. This is not just God forgiving our sin. It is God giving us the righteousness of Christ. Now, here's the sticky point. Have you prayed? Have you invited Jesus Christ into your life? Have you received him? Then you have this. Some of us, Many of us, most of us have this, but don't wear it because it seems so unbelievable. How could I stand righteous in the sight of God? We don't wear it. 
And so what happens? Along comes the diabolos. Along comes the accuser. And he finds all the things that we've done. And he hurls them at us. We don't have the righteousness of Christ on. We're still wearing our own righteousness. And we're saying, oh, yeah, it's true. Maybe I'm not a God follower. And we get into all this kind of insecurity that causes us to lose. I mean, when will we learn to carry the righteousness of Christ and say to the devil, you may be right about me, but my sins were paid for by Jesus on the cross. And maybe on my own I'm a loser, but with Christ I'm more than a conqueror through him who loved me. Take it elsewhere. And I love the old saying, when Satan reminds you of your past, you just remind him of his future. I got to hurry. I got five minutes to give you the next three pieces, okay? Third piece. I'm going to get out of order here. Take the helmet of salvation. As I said earlier on, you want to let the Bible interpret the Bible. There, there is another verse in the Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, that also talks about the helmet of salvation, and it adds a word, and that word is very important. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. Now, salvation, to a lot of us who grew up in church, it has a singular meaning. Salvation for us is usually a term that refers to the moment when we accept Christ, what I just got through talking about. When you put your confidence in Christ, he washes your sins away and gives you his righteousness. The moment when, for many of us, if we grew up in church, we'd say we got saved, salvation. Salvation in the Bible is a broader term, and it can mean more than that. Now, in this particular case, I think it means something else. And the reason for that, for those of you who love to study prophecy, one of the biggest questions about prophecy is will Christians go through the seven-year tribulation period? I read you 1 Thessalonians 5.8. This is where as your helmet, the confidence of your salvation. It is the very next verse that I believe is perhaps the most definitive verse that tells us that Christians will not go through the tribulation. Because it says that we have not been slated for judgment, which I believe refers to tribulation within the context, but we have been slated for salvation. The word salvation there means rescue. Okay, and I'm sorry if that's confusing, but basically here's the bottom line. When the Bible says wear the helmet of salvation, I don't think it's referring to the fact that you've accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. I think what it's referring to is rescue. In other words, you are wearing the confidence that no matter what you face in life, God will rescue you. Maybe the best way of saying this, it is facing the day with such confidence in God that you know you have nothing to lose. I can tell you that one of the things that I hate most in my life as a leader is being tentative. I love to have confidence that no matter which direction I go, it's going to be successful. And this is what God is saying. God is saying, look, I'm going to take care of you. Heaven is out there for you. The best is yet to come. Go out and live all out like you have nothing to lose. I mean, after all, if any of you have ever gone against someone athletically or gone against someone militarily, if you ever go up against somebody with nothing to lose, you're going up against a very dangerous person. And, and, and that's what God wants to have happen here. God wants you to be such a courageous soldier for Jesus Christ that you go out to face the enemy with absolutely nothing to lose. Because after all, even if the worst happens, even if we were to lose our life, we're just going to a perfect place. I couldn't say it better than Paul, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. He said, alive, I'm Christ's messenger. Dead, I'm his bounty. Life versus even more life. I can't lose. As long as I'm alive in this body, there's good work for me to do. If I had to choose right now, I hardly know which I'd choose. Hard choice. The desire to break camp here and be with Christ is powerful. Some days I can think of nothing better. But most days, because of what you're going through, I'm sure that it's better for me to stick it out here. So I plan to be around for a while. 
What a different way to live. Paul is saying, look, if I live here, it's life. If I die, it's more life. Nothing to lose. Hang on to that. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. Let's go to the fourth piece of armor. Chapter 6, verse 1. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Well, flaming arrows, back in the first century, they would either be hurled or shot from a bow. It would either be arrows or darts. The head of the dart would be surrounded by some sort of fabric or material. It would be dipped in a flammable solution and set ablaze. And they would be launched at the, at the enemy. And the hope was not just that the fire would do damage at the point of impact. The hope was that the fire would spread to the entire person. When the Bible talks about the shield of faith that stops the fiery darts of the enemy, I think it's talking about dealing with the fears that Satan hurls at us. Because if there's anything that can hit us and spread, it's fear. And so the Bible is saying, take the shield of faith. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about this because here is the interesting thing. I am convinced that really all five pieces of armor are really faith. It's just looking at faith from different perspectives. Faith in God's rescue. Faith in God's word. Faith that you don't have to worry because God will take care of you. I mean, all five of these pieces are faith. But what we're talking about here is having such faith that when Satan hurls the worries at you, that you don't play the what-if video in your mind, but instead you find a calmness in the midst of all the difficulty. It is like Daniel, who when he heard that the writing was signed that if anyone prayed, they would go to the den of lions. The Bible says Daniel went home and threw open his windows as other times and prayed as always. It is Esther going in before Ahasuerus and saying, if I perish, I perish. How many of you know what it's like to believe God's word in the midst of a difficult time and to have a peace that is unusual, so unusual that nobody around you can understand it? Like Kipling said, if you can keep your head when all around you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. I mean, there is something about having that peace of having confidence in God. That is the shield of faith. And I close now with the fifth piece of armor. This is in verse 15. With your feet fitted with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. Now let me tell you about a problem that I had in preparing this message. Because when I got to a practical point, the helmet of salvation, which is confidence that God is going to take care of me, and the feet that are fitted with preparation of peace, it seemed to me that they were both the same thing. Basically, it's simply this. It is facing the day with confidence in God. It was not until I thought about the difference between the two pieces of armor that it hit me. Maybe hit me is not the right term to use here. But it came to me what the distinction is. Because again, at the end of the day, what we're talking about is when you get up in the morning, you don't know what you're going to face. The helmet of salvation is, I, I, can't, I don't have anything to lose. God is going to take care of me. Feet that are equipped with preparation of peace, that's the same thing. It is saying, I don't know what I'm going to face today, but God is going to take care of me. Here's when it came to me. Whenever the Bible talks about your walk in the Bible, it is talking about your daily life. See, shoes that a Roman soldier would wear, they're not going to stop a sword, they're not going to stop a spear, they're not going to stop a fiery dart. What are shoes for? Shoes are to keep your feet from being punctured by those things that you can walk across. 
Here's when I understood it. I have had one catastrophic blow to my head in my lifetime, which probably explains the way I am. When I was 12 years old, I was trying to show my neighbor how to swing a golf club. And instead of him swinging along a normal golf swing plane, he swung it like this, and he came back and caught my eye, this part of my head, my eye, with a nine iron. And it crushed part of my cheekbone and did damage to my eye. If you ever get up really close to me, you will notice that my left pupil is quite a bit larger than my right pupil. And I still have vision problems to this day in my left eye. That's why my words have to be like this in my sermon notes. <laughs> That's only happened to me one time. But I've stepped on stuff many times. And I believe that's what the Bible is talking about here. It is the confidence in God that gets you through different experiences. The helmet of salvation, I believe, is for those catastrophic things that come into your life every once in a while. It's when you get a diagnosis that rocks your world. It's when you get a phone call late at night that one of your children is in the hospital. It is when the person you love walks out on you and says that he doesn't love you anymore. Those kind of blows don't come very often, but those are catastrophic shots that come to us. I believe it is the helmet of salvation that says, you know what? I don't understand how I'm going to face tomorrow, but I know this, that my future is in God's hands and know that God holds the future. The shoes that we wear, and obviously it's not literal shoes. This is confidence in saying I can face today because today all kinds of agitations are going to come up. All kinds of difficulties. All kinds of, they're not catastrophic shots. They're just those frustrations that can wear us down. But I'm not worried about facing the frustrations of the day because God is with me. And I can say, you know, if it's, if it's over my head, it's under his feet. And all those little things that can puncture my feet and can stop me, I'm not worried about them. I'm trusting them. I'm leaving them to God. And if you and I will start today with faith, committed to his word, with that breastplate of righteousness that says, Satan, you throw any accusation against me you want to throw, I stand in the righteousness of Christ. That part of you that says, even if the worst happens, I am still covered by the promises of God. And beyond that, I've got the shield of faith so that when Satan throws worries at me, I'm going to put my confidence in God and I'm going to find peace in the middle of the storm. And you know what? Even the little agitations that come up every day, God still sees those little agitations. If he knows the number of feathers in a sparrow, he knows the agitations that I'm dealing with today. I am putting my confidence in God, and I'm not going to listen to the lies of the enemy. And if you'll do that, you and I can be unbreakable. I think that's, that's the best thing I know to explain the armor of God could be that you're here though today and you're saying mark i'm still back on a point you talked about earlier that idea that there's a way for me to be right without keeping the law how do i get that do i have to join new spring hey i think new spring's best church in the world but we can't save you you say well do i need to be baptized as i've told you before wichita water can't wash away anybody's sin he says there's some kind of class i need to go to no you know it's a gift Remember, your sins were worn by Jesus. I mean, he, he's already paid for it. It's already been paid for. The other day, I, I went to pay for my meal, and, and then the server came and said, somebody's already paid for it, sir. And, and that's what God is telling you. You say, well, I want to go to heaven. How do, how, how do I pay for it? And, and it's already been paid for, ma'am. It's already been paid for, sir. 
thousands of years, 2,000 years before you were born, the Son of God hung on a cross, and the blood that came out of his veins paid, paid for your heaven, paid for your forgiveness, paid for your perfection and your right standing before God. And you say, well, I feel ungodly. You're the very person God can help because God justifies the ungodly. He can't do anything for the self-righteous. That's why religion stinks so bad. But you know, he can do, if you feel ungodly, you're the very person God can help. Jesus died for you. And the Bible puts it this way, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, I'm whoever, you're whoever. He didn't say whoever calls unless you've, unless you've, committed murder or unless you've committed adultery or unless you've watched pornography or something. God didn't say that. He just said whoever calls. Would you call? Would you receive a free gift from God? If you would, I, I'm going to give you a chance to, to do this with me. I'm going to pray a prayer. And these aren't magic words. They're just words that call. And, and, and you, you can think about them. You know, I'll say them slowly, but you can repeat them. And if you mean them in your heart, what you mean is what matters. But if you're ready to receive this righteousness, if you're ready to put on the belt of truth and decide what you believe, why don't you do it with me right now? You ready? Dear Jesus, I agree that I'm a sinner. Like Mark, I can't be perfect. But I believe you love me with an unconditional love. And I believe you justify the, the ungodly. God, I ask you to forgive me and make me your child. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name.